Hi, my name is Fred Servan, and I'm the host of this show, Homo Ludens. This is the podcast version of a YouTube show about history and board games. So if you like what you hear, you should definitely check that out. For this first episode, I made an audio version in two parts of a discussion I had live in July 2021 about card-driven games with Mark Herman, Volko Runke, and Jason Matthews. I hope you enjoy it. And we made it. Hi and welcome to Homo Ludens, the channel on history and board games. I'm super excited tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about my favorite kind of uh, war games, card-driven games. Uh, we're going to talk about what they are, what makes them so special, and uh, what is the future for that specific family of uh, war games. Uh, so by the way, actually, uh, if you subscribe recently, uh, I made a video a while ago that was doing a statistical analysis of the CDG production over time. So I recommend that you check it out. And I will add a link in the description or a small card that you might see up there if you're watching this after the live. Uh, but back to today's stream, uh, I thought it would be awesome to talk about this specific topic of uh, card-driven games with uh, three designers uh, that are known for their brilliant and uh, pretty influential CDG design. And I have uh, the pleasure uh, to have on the stream uh, tonight, first of all, uh, Volko. Hi, Volko. Hi, Thank hi, you Fred. For coming, so for once you're not a surprise guest, so that's really nice. Uh, for those who don't know, Volko is the creator of the Coin series, but uh, before that, you actually designed two really good uh, and very interesting CDGs, Wilderness War and Labyrinth. So super happy to have you here. And then the legendary Mark Herman. Hi, Mark. Thanks for coming. I'm <laughs> um, good to hear you. <laughs> and. Um, and Mark is the designer of uh, classics uh, such as Washington's War, Empire of the Sun, uh, and uh, I think your most recent CDG was Fort Sumter, or we could say that uh, some of the Statesman series are CDGs, but that's maybe a discussion for uh, for later. And my uh, final guest for tonight uh, is Jason Matthews, so uh, author of GMT's best-selling game, Twilight Struggle, uh, and other very innovative CDGs like uh, 1989, but also 1960, Making of a President. Uh, so hi, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, for everyone, and I also want to say uh, hi to everyone in the chat. I see that there is a lot of people that are already there, so uh, uh, hi to everyone. Uh, just a quick note um, uh, for people watching the stream, as usual, feel free to post your question in the live chat, and I would be happy to bring them uh, on screen and ask the, your question to the guest. If you see that your question is not coming right away, that's probably because I will bring it up at a later point because I tried and I will try to hold to that uh, structure of uh, interview in uh, three different parts. Uh, the first one would be around history and definition. The second part would be around the current state of the, uh, the genre. Uh, and then we'll talk about uh, the future of uh, the CDGs. We'll also have a short interview, uh, probably at the one hour mark or something uh, like this. And this interview uh, will be for uh, each of our guests to actually uh, share with uh, us their um, top three current CDGs, because I've heard that on YouTube, those kind of things work pretty well. So we're trying to get some views. Uh, so we'll have a bit that, uh, that interviewed there. Uh, but I think that's uh, it's for the introduction. And maybe what I would like to start before we talk about the topic of today, it's something that I like to, to ask the guests when they come in on the show uh, is, maybe just uh, hear a bit about themselves and, and how they discovered war games. Uh, so what was their journey into wargaming and how it was yeah, the first uh, the first contact with the with the hobby? And I would like to start with you, Mark. 
Oh, sure. Uh, by starting a hobby uh, a long time ago, uh, I was, uh, I guess it was like over 50 years ago, I guess. Um, and I was, uh, I found a, um, well, first I started as a child, I played chess. So that was really my first strategy game. And that was really the only game I played through most of my, uh, you know, the single digit youth years. And then around 12, I discovered Avalon Hills Battle of the Bulge. And, you know, I sort of uh, really took a shine to it. And I spent uh, pretty much the rest of my uh, life playing those kind of games. Cool. Uh, and you, Volko, how was it? Uh, early 1970s, I was in fifth grade uh, visiting a friend's house and he had a copy of uh, Punzer Blitz. And uh, I did. I, I, he didn't know he had get, gotten it from somewhere. He didn't know what it was, you know, and he wasn't very interested in it. But I just loved the way you could fit the boards together. You know, and I was like, that's kind of cool. And I, and I started looking at them in stores. And my first game, which I bought shortly after that, was France 1940. Oh, nice. And uh, you, Jason, how did you get into the, the wargaming hobby? Well, um, my dad, when I was, I believe, in seventh grade or something like that um he uh bought me the plastic version of axis and allies uh for christmas and uh that started off uh, my introduction to the hobby my dad and i played every weekend three or four times a weekend it was kind of, it became an obsession and um i i started to look around for the next thing and uh weirdly origins um was in Los Angeles, which is where I grew up. And so I went to Origins looking for Axis and Allies, and then I sort of discovered the whole giant world. <laughs> hey, maybe as a, as a quick follow-up to, to this, uh, uh, which was the first card-driven game that, that uh, each of you played, starting with you, uh, Jason? Uh, we the People, for sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that really changed my whole perspective on wargaming. And you, Volko? I, I missed We the People, and I can I can explain why. But for me, it was Hannibal Rome versus Carthage by Mark Simonich uh, shortly after, you know, that and uh, after We the People came out. And it also completely changed my perspective on war games. And Mark, I don't know if you can answer that question, because I guess you might have designed the first one, so you probably played your own <laughs> yeah, prototype. Yeah, people, obviously. Another answer would have been super surprising. But uh, I think that's that's yeah, that gives a, a, a very nice intro. So so thanks for for that. And I guess we can probably jump in into that um, into that that first part. And I think we can uh, start straight into talking about the the, the subject that makes people uh, upset uh, on Board Game Geek uh, quite a bit. And let's talk about definition. And I would like to ask the question first, what is for you um, a CDG? Uh, how would you define it? What makes a CDG and what makes a game just a card assisted game or something like this? Uh, what, what would you say, Mark? Well, uh, well, first off, I, I, I want to say that um, we the people, when I did it, wasn't a card-driven game in my mind. I mean, I did a, um, I did a game about a counterinsurgency, and it was a uh, area control game that happened. Ultimately, it was first an area control game about you know you control Virginia. You, the idea was to control more colonies than the other side to win the war. So, and that was inspired by reading. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the. Um, the TV show Turn is a character called Lieutenant Colonel John Simcoe. And I actually got to read his um, 
his memoir that was privately published in England right after the war. And it just changed my whole understanding of the American Revolution. It was like, I, whatever I knew about it, I just felt like I didn't know anything about it. And so I saw the war very differently. And that's what led me to an area control, you know, game, you know, where you're, then that's really with the placing the PC market. So that's what I started off with. And then um, I had these events and then for, and then one day it just sort of said like, you know, why, why am I using this mechanism when I can just put it all together? So that's kind of really what ended up happening. Uh, and then the term CDG comes from pretty much Gene Billingsley doing marketing. It was a branding thing. So because it was, it wasn't called a area control game. It was a car driven game. And so cards became the focus. Certainly when I did it, what I liked about it was, you know, my father was a big gin rummy player. I mean, everybody I knew in Brooklyn played gin rummy. And so having played probably ridiculous number of gin rummy games, I always liked holding cards. You know, I always liked the idea of holding a, you know, you have a set of cards and then I like hearts and spades and bridge. And so it was a natural thing to when I had cards, I said, this is really kind of cool. I get to make choices. I had like this menu of choices that's random each time I do it. And so that was really the driver for the, the cards for me was that, you know, tactile decision-making element. And, and the thing that um, I would say is there were three, and when I say I, I created the beginning of the genre, but I want to say that there is really, I look at, there's like three people who really created the genre in my mind, the way it's currently defined. So let me just say, so I obviously did the initial hash up of the whole thing and it, it kind of came out. Okay. Uh, Mark Simonich, when he did Hannibal, he was the one who said, you know, I had this thing where I had separate events from cards, and that was an intentional choice at that time, but Mark felt better to put the two together. So most people events and operations team, they're gonna lay out this, you know, this choice between this or that, right? And that's not a choice in Washington's world, though. I will say that Charlie Vasey and I, once in a long conversation, decided that early before there was staffs. Um, we felt that you shouldn't have the choice. And that's why Unhappy King Charles, you know, comes out very much like a direct, directly out of We the People. Um, and then, of course, Ted Racer with Paths of Glory sort of ends to the cards, right? So the cards gain greater functionality um, to all that. And I, I want to say something, and this is a compliment to Volca, which I really try not to do too often, but I can't help myself. Uh, there is an enormous amount of complexity when you have seven cards in your hand and what are you going to do? And a lot of people get what they call analysis paralysis. And, and what Volko did when he kind of evolved from what I'll call the CDG to labyrinth to the coin series is he took the card, the, the hand of cards out of your hand and you had two choices and that lowers the complexity and the barrier to entry tremendously. I mean, it just takes a whole level of complexity. Now, I'm saying I happen to like that complexity, but for some people, that's the thing that that was driving them crazy. So, if you get a, you play a game of for the people, or you know, we the people, or Empire of the Sun, or Twilight Struggle, or you know, Wilderness War, and just go on and on, that hand of cards represents both kind of a cool thing, but it also means like, what the heck do I do next? For some people, that's almost like too stressful. That's what I would say. And and for you, Volko, would you have a, a build up on that on on how you would define what is a what is a what is a CDG? Yeah, I mean, be, 
I have to bounce off the phrase card driven game. And if that's interesting that Gene came up with that, that makes total sense. Um, I think with capital C, capital D, capital G, I think that was Gene. Yeah. And uh, so it has to be, it means driven by cards, right? The action, the, the sequence of play, if you like, uh, such as it is, is driven by the play of cards. You have to play a card for anything to happen. Uh, and for me, it's a little more than that to be a capital C, capital D, capital G. I have to be able to see the genealogy in it. Like every game design has lineage, right? I mean, the, the innovations are twists on older things. It comes from somewhere. And, and what Mark was just describing was, you know, a family tree, right? An evolution through the 90s and, and into the 2000s. So I want to see in that design, I want to be able to detect the lineage back to we the people. So if that narrows it a bit. So if if I can see how the cards are influencing the, the, the actions moving forward, the sequence of play, the progress, the dynamics, the motion in the game, if I can see that that traces back to we the people, then to me it's a CDG. And actually on that point, the point about genealogy, I think is super interesting. And I just want to give a shout out to David Doctor, uh, who on BGG had a thread around CDGs and he made that awesome uh, timeline where you have we the people and you have the different branches. And I think he did an amazing job at actually mapping it out uh, and giving a, a broad sense of what is for him a CDG. And I think it was really in the direction of what you were saying, uh, Volko. You see the genealogy, but you also have the different branches that build up over time. And I think it's it, it, like the visualization that he made is, is really, uh, really awesome for that. And, and, for, and for you, uh, Jason? Um, I, I guess, uh, well, I agree with with everything that uh, Volko and Mark have said, of course, but um, I guess the driven is the part for me of CDG that matters the most. Obviously, you can use cards in a variety of different ways. And if it's purely as a matter of operations where you're just deciding um, how many pieces can be moved on the board by virtue of uh, flipping a card, that's one thing. But I think in any game where um, where the card provides, the cards provide the narrative arc of the game, then that's what really makes for a CDG. I'm curious though, if Volko, do you consider the coins derived from CDGs? Uh, derived, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And that's actually a super interesting question because thinking about it, I was trying to also on my mind trying to frame what I think is a CDG, and uh, and of course that genealogy aspect makes a lot of of sense. And basically, what you're saying is the multiple use of cards, the fact that you can use for events or for ops to interact with the board and everything, and the fact that you have that choice and that most of the choice evolve around the opportunity that is given by the card. Think about it; it, it feels like. Uh, coin is doing this because you either take the event or you take the ops. It's just that the ops are always the same uh, in a way. Yeah. Right. And so you know, I don't know what's you know what's in a word, right? It's it's it's, it's semantics. Um, so after a while, the debate you know, becomes less interesting. But I would also go back to the distinction that Mark raised. To me, is if I if it's like, oh, let's play this CDG. Okay, I'm interested. Let's play a CDG. I like CDGs. I'm going to expect hand management. Mm. Right. And so with coin, yes, it's it's absolutely derived. I, there would be no coin if there was not wash, you know, if there was not, um, we, the people, Washington's war, etc. There would be no coin if there was no labyrinth, which is right in that channel, uh, of genealogy as Mark described, but you know, I don't know, would you expect the cards to work the way they do in coin 
if somebody said we're going to play a CDG, and I would not. I, I, I would. I, oh, you go ahead, Jason. That's fine. Sorry. Um, and I, I find there to be a little bit of a distinction between what we term a CDG and a game like um, Hammer of the Scots, which is a superb game, but right. does not. It just doesn't have the. I, I, if I went over and someone said, "Let's play a CDG," and they pulled Hammer of the Scots down. That's not what I would expect. Right. And and to me, because I don't see we the people as a progenitor, I mean, it, maybe it is, I don't know, but I can't detect that lineage in Hammer. And, and Mark, you were about to say uh, to say something. Yeah, yes. Um, the, the, the thing that, um, again, it, and I think it goes back to the vocal talk about genealogy, I always saw the the choice of you know like a, a typical CDG now would have a a one through f like in Paths of Glory it's got a one th uh, I don't think there's no ones but you have a two to a five value so you've got four different values on the card and you've got some kind of event right and because you've got split decks you don't have to worry about you know is it a German event or you know uh, or an allied event but but the but the basic point is is that there is this choice. That's, I think that's the important part, not how the cards constructed. So when I did We the People, the choice was at the hand level. So if you imagine a hand of cards is a bunch of choices between ops and events, what Mark did when he did Hannibal is he integrated every card into that choice, right? So that was the evolution from the hand choice to the card choice. And then Ted took it sort of like, you know, oh, why don't I just run every darn thing, you know, mecha mechanism in the game through the choice? You got your replacements that way and all that kind of stuff. And um, and also, you know, but but I will tell you a, a quick story, but it's a, it is a quick story because I don't have the thing. When when I did We the People, uh, Mark Simonich um, was very interested in that system, obviously. He And he and I are very good friends. And so there was about a month of emails back and forth. This is like when there was like no AOLs, like Genie Network practically. And we kind of laid out what we thought were the, what is a CDG? We defined it for ourselves. And, and you have to remember, we the people had the battle card system also in it, right? So there was this whole, you know, like, you know, two level thing. Like when I get into battle, I, I it, was, it, was, it was even more card oriented um, than came later. People, we took that, that kind of came out. Uh, in fact, I think the only two that have that system are Hannibal and We the People, if I'm not mistaken, of, of that genealogy. Uh, in 1989. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah, right. You got that great, uh, that great little, resolution. Little known title, but it's, it's oh, got yeah. so, that, so there's the three that kept <laughs> that sort of separate card-driven, you know, uh, mechanic uh, in play. And I have to say, of the three, probably 1989 does it the best because it's the most interesting. Uh, and it's most consequential, actually, because, you know, you're dealing with how a whole country is going to. Isn't that right, Jason? A whole country is decided based on that, that well, mechanic. It, is, it, it was decided as an homage to your system. So, uh, you know, take oh, it off well, it's worth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but but I think that, um, you know, uh, when I think of Hammer of the Scots, it has... Um, you know, it has this idea that I've got a hand of cards and I'm going to pick ops or you, there's only a few events. So I think the events really, it's really an op driven game, you know, with, you could have done it with chits, you could have done, you know, so the card, 
it's just the fact that there's a couple of events usually, but there's not many. Um, and, and I will tell you, one of the things that Mark and I um, spoke about long ago, which uh, is something, I'm not going to call it a rule because there's no such thing as a rule in game design, right? But there was a, a feeling that if you had this numbering system, like, so I, I've always favored the one, two, and three, right? You know, so, and, and Volko used the same exact one in Wilderness War, right? Wasn't it Volko one, twos, and threes with yep. an event? And yep. isn't that the same also in Twilight Struggle, right? Up Am I right? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I, I've been so lost in the Pacific lately, I don't know where the hell I am. Um, so, so the point of that that numerology is typically a three cards better than a one card. And that was always one of the things that bothered me. And Mark and I spoke about how do you make a one card still not like, oh, I got screwed on, on the drawer kind of thing. And that's where some of the more um, interesting events were supposed to go. In other words, you know, things that were interesting events, but they were low rated means you would play the event. Oh, you would, you would make the, the player choice easier by saying it's a one car, but man, this is a cool event. I'll go with the event, you know, because players are great at arbitrage, right? Where's my greater value? And, and I, in fact, I think uh, uh, in Empire of the Sun, the one cards are very powerful in the right circumstance. In fact, they're more powerful than three cards in the right circumstance. So that's always been sort of the, the challenge in some games. Uh, and the other missed thing we, we talked about in those um, email exchanges is, and you have to understand the uh, card deck probability. You know, like, if I, what is the chance I'm going to draw this out of the other thing? And when you make too many cards contingent on other cards, the probability is that threat is never going to happen because, you know, A has to happen before B happens before C happens before D, and you shuffle it all up. You know, that might only happen, you know, 15% of the time. So you're almost so you have to be very careful about like the use of mandatory events or events that require a triggering event is uh, easily screwed up in a lot of games. I've seen that in a lot of CDGs that didn't really think that thing through, and that that is one of their weaknesses. Actually, is that particular uh, misnomer? And those are things that Mark and I spoke about before he did Hannibal uh, long, long ago. Can I bounce it, off of something Mark just said there? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah it's so interesting about this, um, whether you pair the more or less interesting events with the lower ops numbers, it just really made me think of um, Scott Moore's uh, This War Without an Enemy just out recently. And I'm now, and I'm like, I'm not sure what I, is that, is it a CDG? Because most of the cards have events on them and most of the cards have ops, but it owes its lineage pretty directly to Hammer of the Scots and Crusader Rex even more explicitly, I think. And... The way that Scott solves that exact problem is when you play the card, you get the whole card and it's either four ops and no event, three ops and a weak event, or two ops and a strong event. So it's not at all the same choice as in Hannibal Rose versus Carthage, but is this, is that from CD? I don't know. I'd have to ask him like, where did, did that come from CDG, Scott, or not? But that's directly the same usage as as in Crusader Rex. The cards are used the same way, and you don't have a decision like because in Crusader Rex you have uh, no no it's actually different because in Crusader no. Rex the, the event doesn't have any ups. But I mean Crusader Rex yeah. is like Hammer the Scots, yeah. Yeah, but Jerry, uh, you don't you you don't have a you don't have a choice when you're playing the card. It's like it's either for ups and it happens, or <laughs> or it would be uh, limited ups. But you, you don't have you will play and, your whole and hand. The, whole, the sequence is different for those games for the Jerry Taylor games. You both play a card face down. You flip them up. The higher ops goes first, or if yeah, that's the, the it goes first. Yeah. It's very it's different. It's different. 
But yeah, by the way, just so you know, um, the game there is a game that I, I like. It's a CDG, um, Hearts and Minds, and Hearts oh, yeah. and Minds um, definitely has that, you know, that sort of that middle choice, right? In other words, you get like X amount of ops. I don't remember what the numbers are, but let's say you get three ops for just for argument's sake. You can use two of those ops to get the event, and you still have one right. op. Or you know, there's a there's a cost for the event out of your. So you can like a budget, yeah. And you can use that budget all for ops, or you can use some of the budget to buy the event and do some ops and right. somewhere or just or maybe the it, events in some it, cases are so expensive. It's, to use it's, holy it's brilliant. It's cards. brilliant. I love Hearts and Minds, and it actually a similar solution is in one of my top three CDGs, but I'll save that for later. Yeah, don't. I just would like to to bring up a, a question from from Alan here, and I think that uh, I would probably ask that question to Jason and see if the if the two of you want to build up on this. But there is a question from Alan that goes in the direction of something that I wanted to ask. He's talking about uh, the impression that he has is that CDG is particularly useful for political conflict or to also encompass the political aspect of a conflict. And that's also something that came up when I was preparing that show on the discussion is that that feeling that. Most CDGs, even if they are war games, they don't only depict war, and there are usually a political element to to it that it's not purely about uh, military operations. And I just wanted to have your thought about: is this a key element, core element of what is a CDG, or that's just one uh, side effect of using the cards and the events? I mean, um, for me, obviously, it is a core element, um, and in fact, I would go so far as to say that one of the things that I think is most brilliant about uh, the We the People system was the insight that you can quantify political power just as easily as you quantify military power. Because up until then, you know, war games had control markers and that re represented a lot of different things, but we didn't really have a lot of war games. I mean, I'm not saying none, I'd have to go through, there's a, uh, you know, a long lineage of these things, but there weren't a lot of war games where you were quantifying political power and putting it on a board and have it, a, give it a geographic representation the same way that we the people did. And that was really the insight that brought Twilight Struggle to the fore because um, that was the thing we were like, oh, Eureka, you can do the same thing with diplomatic and political power that we do with putting kits on a kits on a map uh, and moving them around hexes. Um, I do think that it's not it's not a necessary part of a CDG. It just played a, an extremely uh, interesting little CDG about San, the Battle of Santa Cruz, which is a British amphibious landing. Ivan um, Tantras. It has no political component at all, but it is clearly a CDG. Um, yeah. But um but it does it does help bring the political component into warfare particularly well at the strategic level and even more so i think in um in conflicts that have a high political component i mean they all do in a way but but more acutely in civil wars and that sort of thing where you expect a very high political component and it's never very well represented just by military units on hexes. Um, and so, yes, I, while it's it's not a requirement of the genre, it certainly is a feature of it. Would you agree with that, Mark? 
Well, as I said earlier, when I did We the People, it was meant to be a hearts and minds game. You know, in other words, it was an insurgency. And so at its core, it was a political game where there was military stuff supporting the politics versus where the politics was sort of layered on. It was a political game from the very beginning, you know, because you get control. And it's actually, if you know, because of the isolation rules, there is a form of political combat. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, I use the, um, you know, the famous Wei Chi Go system for surrounding, but the idea was that as long as you can expand your base, then your political movement's growing. And once you're, you're hemmed in, if you don't have some way of, of offering protection to that base, then it can, it'll, it, it'll, it'll just wither and die. And so you had this thing where all you had to do is get some troops in there and it's fine. But if you don't, if you don't use the military to support the political, the political is the main game. You, you don't win, but you can win a hundred battles in that game and still lose the game. It's all about colony control. Uh, but if you ignore how the military supports that political movement or how the military puts down that political movement, then you haven't figured out the game. So it's always been a political military. And in fact, almost all the CDGs I have done, with the exception of one, it are straight political military games. And just uh, to follow up on your question, Volko, about Scott, we have Scott actually in the in the chat who's uh, who's actually saying that. So hey, Scott, thanks for for joining. He said that there is was definitely CDGs in in uh, probably at least CDGs in the back of his mind when he when he worked on on this war without the, an enemy. By the way, just a, a shameless plug, uh, we played. Uh, uh, Scott's game with Scott uh, Teach and Play last week. So if you want to check that out, if you want to check this world without an enemy, amazing game, beautiful game, really cool. Almost a CDG, so that's <laughs> so that's very so that's very thematic, and uh, and that's uh, and and that's it. Uh, I have just a, a quick, uh, maybe more in the direction of uh, of uh, defining the scope of, of of what are CDGs. One maybe one last question on the taxonomy part. We have Ricardo Massini who's just asking a question, and I don't know if you know that system, but he's asking, uh, would you describe the Napoleon series, uh, so Napoleon 1806, Napoleon 1807, and the future Napoleon 1815 by Shaco's games as CDGs? And I don't know if you know those games. Uh, you can probably see them here, but I, I don't know if any of you have played them. I have no? not played them. I've been looking at pictures on, on, uh, on uh, the web uh, uh, admiringly, but I have not played them. Good, but then yeah, then I would would have no answer. I can answer. My answer is no. It's not because you have no decisions. Uh, it's like it is. It it is. The 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 cards are at the core of the system. It drives the system, but you don't have choice between ops or events. Uh, and I don't think that it, it it necessarily applies based on the discussion that we had. But I think that's uh, that's probably for uh, for another time. And I have maybe one uh, last question around uh, that to to close that first part. And that's even yeah, maybe a philosophical question, but what is a card like literally what it is supposed to uh represent what is is what it is a, an abstraction of uh and i guess that the answer is probably different depending on the game that we're looking at but i would be curious to have your opinion uh, on what you think a, a card is is abstract abstracting and maybe we can start with with you mark well one of the things that and i, I actually wrote a column on this a long time ago uh, if you go to a, um, an actual military commander and, or a leader, a, I mean, I'm talking about a very senior leader and you say to them, you know, what is the thing that you do when you do your thing? And they, they'll tell you that 
they're always about managing risk and uncertainty, trying to accomplish something. They're trying to get something done with risk and uncertainty. That's the basic thing you'll hear. You can hear it different ways, but they all say the same thing. And when I was a senior uh, you know, leader, uh, that was how I looked at it. And what you find is, is that the game, the cards, um, for the most part, are re representing, um, there's only so much time in, in any day. And so, you know, if you're President Lincoln in the Civil War, if you're in the middle of a political crisis, you're not paying attention to the war. And if you're in the middle of the war, you're paying attention to the war, their political things are kind of getting out of hand. And so you always got this political military balance going on. And the card is the metaphor of that choice, set of choices, those metaphorical choices. Because if you think, and then people say, well, I can do all those things. And I'll tell you that I have been, and I know Volko also, and Jason's been involved at a very high level. And, and, and we've all been actually involved in very senior things and uh, uh, in the, in the U S uh, government and military. And I will tell you that senior bandwidth is not infinite. Things get things fall on the floor. He's smiling. Things fall on the floor because this right now is more important than that. And, and then all of a sudden something else becomes more important. And, and so the game is representing those senior decision choices. And the idea that you could do everything is, uh, it's just not true. And coordinating things is rare, not normal. And hex and counter games made that normal. You know the way Tactics Two plays. You know I can move some all or none of my pieces. That is a brilliant uh, extension of chess, right? In chess, I move, you move, and you can create combinations. But I got to kind of set it up, and then all of a sudden the combination plays out. But in what, what, what Charles Roberts did was he said, "Hey, you can do this combination all the time." And it is that's why they're so darn fun because you could just create these elaborate combinations. You could do the same thing in a CDG, but you've got to figure out the sequencing of balancing what the situation is and whether I'm going to go more political or more military at this moment based on the circumstances. Those choices are real. And I think when you take those choices away, that's the abstraction, not the cards. Jason, I saw you reacting a lot when, when Mark was, was talking. Would you? Would... Yeah, well, Mark was saying something about uh, senior decision makers uh capacity for decision making is not infinite it's it's not even particularly plentiful uh, as far as i can tell but the um i i i agree with uh i mean i i think that's a very clever characterization that a card represents the dilemma of a decision maker in whether to sort of pursue their plan or whether to react to um, the circumstances around them I also kind of look at them in the broader scope of what the game is doing, that it's a moment in time and we're going to have however many moments in time defined by the deck and we're going to sequence those and all together it tells a narrative arc, like this is the story of the game and the story of the game is told by making one micro decision after another. Uh, kind of uh, navigated by the decks and the cards and the events on them. Would you agree with that also, Volko? Uh, I, I would. And uh, to maybe go a little more into the specifics in the CDG form, the answer to me relates back to the question about, is this a particularly good way to show political conflicts? And the answer is yes, and, and then some. So to me, the cards 
are so wonderful because they allow all kinds of things that are of different disciplines and 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 uh, influences on the situation other than what's at the core and that's how i think of the cards in cdgs they to be a cdg the card has to drive actions and it has to offer or sometimes offer events and what's the difference between those two what do those two represent the actions always go back to a menu there's a thing i can do maybe it's move the army maybe it's convert political control of a space Maybe as in, in, in Paths of Glory, I can do strategic redeployments or I can add forces, whatever. Um, the events are specific then to that card. That represents the first one, the actions on the card represents whatever the, the core processes are. The designer is basically making a choice and saying, well, I'm mainly gonna focus in on the maneuver of armies, let's say. And I may, that and the conversion of hearts and minds where the armies are in specific spaces, whatever. That's the actions, but then there's all kinds of other things, almost infinite other things, whatever that is, that influences that core military activity or that core diplomatic activity or that core political activity. And that's where you, that's where the, you then bring it in very neatly with the card because your rule is right there. You bring in whatever that is. Now that might be politics, that might be economics, that might be culture, that might be a specific personality, a leader, a politician. It might be in some cases, acts of nature. Um, it might be tactics. If you're the, at the operational level, you're focusing on operations of the movement of maneuver of armies. But every once in a while, there's something important like a battle and you want to bring in certain tactical twists that can be on the cards. Or if you're at the operational level and you want to bring in higher level, you know, strategical um, impacts on the armies, you can bring that in with cards, whatever you want. So you've got a, a core process or set of processes, the designer saying that's the focus, that's what that's the narrative we're telling. And then you've got all those other things, which are the uncertainties and risks, if you will, that might, um, might happen, might not happen, might happen, but not in a way that affects anything. And that's then represented by the shuffling of the deck and the, the deal and the hard hands and so forth. And one question uh, on the definitions part, uh, just to, to bring it up, because it was also something that was brought up in discussions, and we have Ricardo that is asking this in the chat. Oh, we lost uh, Jason. And the question is, uh, no, that's not the one. Uh, the elephant's room is uh, combat commander. Then based on the discussion that we had, would you put combat commander in the CDG category uh, or not? Maybe starting with you, Voko, because you made a really weird face. So I think you have... Oh, my goodness, say. yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I would. I don't know if Gene Billingsley does, but but I absolutely see in Combat Commander um, the lineage going back of the card um, with actions and ops menus um, and uh, events, different ways to play the card, driving the, the narrative. And it to me, Combat Commander represents the second phase you know i wouldn't call it a traditional cdg but i would call it a part of the evolution to actually greater possibilities would you agree with that mark um so i think it, I, I well one i think volko's characters so let's let's say that um you know if you ever looked at the the family tree of humans right 
uh, you know, there's, you know, there's Lucy and, it, and I think they just found recently a skull that was in China and they're saying that's another, you know, who knows? But the point is, is that there's sequels and branches that come off of all these things. And I think all things that I've ever done, you know, I stood on the you know, shoulders of giants long before me. Uh, so like when I did Empire of the Sun, I think, see, I, I think of Empire of the Sun the way I would think about Combat Commander, not that they're similar to each other at all, but they, they are, they're taking that mechanical function of how to use the cards. And I, and where I always came from is the CDG had to be an area control game, right? That was always my, that's where I started it all from. So I was sort of as a political military struggle with this, you know, this trade space. When I did Empire of the Sun, I was looking literally to redo how you think about hex encounter games. So it was stepping away from the political. It, there is a political dimension to Empire of the Sun, but it's not through the cards. I mean, a little bit through the cards, but not much. Uh, and it also used the cards to handle the wider war. But but it's it is a hex encounter game using the card driven mechanic, and it is a CDG. But it's a second evolution. And I think that and again, I. I've never had a conversation with Chad about this in particular. I've worked with him, but we never talked about this. So I don't know what he was thinking when he went to Combat Commander, but it clearly has that, you know, you don't do anything without cards. And I, and I think I saw, um, uh, you know, I, I've actually got the YouTube live stream on with the sound off, of course, over here, just so I can see the questions faster. And somebody, and, and Upfront always comes up. And, yeah. and when I think about Upfront, first off, it's, it's a brilliant game. I love it. Uh, Upfront's lineage is squad leader. In other words, what they were trying to do was a quick and dirty game of squad leader without all you know the, the fourteen thousand pages of rules. And so, Upfront was a brilliant game, uh, but its intent and, and and you can say, well, it uses cards and the game is driven by cards. But there's also no map. There's no area control. There's no you know. There's got, it doesn't have all those other elements. It is. Fundamentally, it's, it's squad leader with cards, you know, terrain and jumping around and all that. And I love the game, by the way. I have all the, you know, every variant I've played. We play it re uh, frequently. Uh, a guy named Hawkeye and I play it when we can. It's a fabulous game, but it it just comes from a whole different, you know, mindset where it was going. So people always bring it up. And they, again, they're trying to take the Gene Billingsley, you know, branding, card-driven, uh in its literal sense, which a lot of gamers do, they take everything literally, you know, especially, you know, they can parse a rule like uh, nobody's business to get literal, you know, when they want to get something to happen in a, in a, in a game. But, but ultimately you're not dealing with, you're, you're dealing with a, a marketing uh, definition when you try to push the word card driven through everything. I think Volko's done a, a great job of sort of saying, this is what, what it's the, it's the intent and mechanics of it that matter. Not, you know, whether you can say there's a card and it's driven or, you know, it's the, those choice. Let me put it this way. Squad leader doesn't have any choices. You play a card to either move or shoot. And in fact, in some ways, um, you know, you could say that comic commander might bring some of that. I, again, without Chad here to talk about, I have no idea, but I see elements of uh, up front in uh, combat commander actually, because of, you know, again, but you don't have to worry about there the are. You actually move pieces, but you know, but there is elements of that in it. Be, be, yeah. I mean, combat commander clearly has squad leader and upfront in its lineage as well. Right. It's a yeah, but I think we'll uh, we'll maybe stop here about maybe the lineage and the definition because I think there is a lot of uh, those questions about this C C CDG not CDG and I think we could spend the whole evening about 
pick a sure. game. Is it a CDG? <laughs> and then it never stops. Uh, but uh, but it was a, an interesting chat. And I think now what I would like us to start the, the talking about is uh, about the current state of CDGs. Uh, so maybe looking at the last uh, five, ten years maximum, uh, looking at the evolution that you've seen uh, over the over the, the past half decade or 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 a decade. And here the the question that I have for you is that. Uh, what are the, the, the most uh, interesting innovations that you've seen to the CGG system in the last five to 10 years? Um, and, and like in the usage of events or the application to different scales or to different topics, uh, what really um, uh, struck you as, as interesting evolution of, uh, of, uh, of the system? And now that Jason is back, maybe we can start with, uh, with Jason. We could, you could see him moving a lot uh, back there. Um. So I, I guess um, the thing that the, the single game that most intrigued me was the application of a CDG to a courtroom setting um, that was uh, Al Barry did. I mean, what can only be described as incredibly obscure history for most Americans, but Al Barry did a, um, a, a, a trial-based CDG uh, called High Treason, and it's about the um, the trial of Louis Rial, who is a, a kind of a, a Canadian guy. revolutionary in Canada. Um, and uh, you're you're going to drive people insane because I think the game is extremely hard to find. It was a it was a victory point game, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, and I'm so glad. I don't even remember who. Who pointed it out to me? But I was so glad to track it down because it turned out to be—it's it, quite a entertaining game as well. So, um, so that that concept definitely got me thinking, and I, I think in general uh, there has been a lot of great work, both in the application and and in exploring topics that have never really been explored before. Um, you know, Dan Bullock has got a game on an existing game on uh, on North Korea, uh, No Motherland Without, and he's got a new one coming out on the 1979 revolution in Iran. Um, I think both of those kinds of topics are very exciting and not the sort of thing that Americans had been producing uh, war games about traditionally. Um, and you know the. And I, I also tend to like uh, these little games that pack a big punch um, in, in a short amount of time. So uh, Santa Cruz, which I mentioned earlier, but also Kevin Bertram's Shores of Tripoli. Again, the history is a little off the beaten path, and that always appeals to me. And you have all this stuff ready, so that's, that's perfect. <laughs> um, I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> like and, sh and shores of Tripoli is there. You have to make me move a lot. So th this is the yeah. Yes, and and just uh, so I think that that stuff is incredibly exciting in terms of the innovations in the in in games themselves. Um, the other thing that I, I I can't remember the title of it, but these little micro CDGs I think are a very interesting idea where it's, you know, 10 cards or 12 cards or whatever. Uh, there's one on, uh, I think, uh, there's one on one of the Roman rebellions in England, uh, I think, 
maybe Volko or oh it's a micro it's a micro coin uh coin tribes uh a very small one well but it, it's i don't know if it qualifies as a ctg yeah, or yeah, as a mini right. or as a mini coin we came, mini we coin. went through this jason we said no we said no coins are not cdgs <laughs> you're ruining the whole <laughs> so that doesn't qualify but yeah there is a actually in that range there is a small one that was released recently uh i think this one so it's ah, actually yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah originally yeah, a japanese design published yeah. by a French publisher, uh, Nuts Publishing 300. Uh, but it's more in the lunchtime categories or a lot like uh, Mark Herman's uh, uh, Fort Sumter, uh, for, for example, in that scope. Not micro, uh, but uh, definitely a, a, a way smaller scale games that can be played in, in 40 minutes. Is, is Paris Commune CDG? Uh, Red Flag over Paris? Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's uh, it is um, the 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 game that made me want to make that game was was Fort Sumter. When I played Fort Sumter, I I I wanted to make a game on the Paris Commune for a long time and was frustrated about what how I should make it, and I really didn't know. And when I played Fort Sumter after my first game, I was like, oh, now I know. Like it was suddenly painfully obvious. It's like this is the system that I need to use. I probably need to change it, and I and I changed it uh, uh, significantly by some some aspects. But the core of it is is definitely uh, is definitely that. And and for me, Fort Sumter is a is a pure CDG, a concentrated form of a CDG. But and I don't know if Mark could disagree, but but for me, it is definitely hundred percent a hundred percent a CDG. And and Mark is thinking now. I'm super worried <laughs> that I said something <laughs> stupid. And he's like, no. He's about to no. tell you your game is not a CDG. I'm a happy guy. I'm just listening. <laughs> Good. Uh, but uh, yeah, and uh, actually, on on my side, there was one innovation that I was super impressed by, and I don't know if any of you ha have played uh, Flashpoint South China Sea by Harold Buchanan. Uh, and we were talking when we were talking about definition and the fact that. Um, one of the core aspects of CDG is how you use the chord and the choice that you have to make and the, the, the decision-making part. The thing that, and I don't know if it existed in another game, but for me, it was the first time that I saw it. The fact that when you play a chord, you can play it for ops, you can play it for the event. Uh, and there is this layer that I've never seen is that a chord is also a scoring chord. So like in Twilight Struggle, it's not, the scoring is not separate is not a separate card. It actually, every card is a scoring card. And you have that trade-off of deciding, am I going to use it for ups or am I going to score now? And you have the whole layer of hand management and knowing how much, how many times can you score uh, in a turn, when do you need to score the different things? And I thought it was like mind-blowing. And it seems obvious when you see it, but I was thinking, why didn't I think about it? Like it's, <laughs> it, was, it was quite, and I don't know if, if, if Jason, you've, you've played that. Uh, that I that, did. That I, yeah, I, I think it, it's a brilliant design. I'm really looking forward to having a hard copy of it soon. And, and you, Mark, on, on your side, is there any uh, things when you're looking back over the five, 10 years, CDGs, uh, any innovation that you were inspired by, surprised by, things that, that really struck you? I, I would say that um, I'm looking over here. I know it's over there somewhere. Um, so there was sort of like this, um, you know, explosion of CDGs and, you know, there was a group of them that was good and there was a group of them that, you know, were that kind of like were misguided and didn't do that well. But, you know, the whole bunch of them came out in the uh, 90s and the early 21st century. And then it kind of petered out for quite a while. It really, you know, I, I did Empire of the Sun in 2005 and Amateur in Arms was somewhere around that period of time, which is a really good CDG and all that. It seems to be making a resurgence. So the one... The one that I've really liked, I've played lately, uh, is Bayonets and Tomahawks. Is that the way it goes? Yeah, Bayonets and Tomahawks. Yeah. Really cool. 
it's a card during game, but I think it leans uh, very heavily. It, it kind of tries to cut the difference between coin having two cards that are visible and having a hand of like two cards, you know? So, you know, so there is some choices because you've got this sort of, you always get this reserve card as you, you know, cycle through and who has the initiative and all this kind of stuff. So I think I like the way that um, Rodriguez uh, did uh, use the coin card driven kind of genre uh, in a new way. I, I think, uh, I think that I've seen, um, you know, the other thing that, uh, has come along. I, I had a um, you know a French intervention track in um, in We the People, uh, you know, a mechanic for the French inter intervening, and I you know expanded upon it. I've seen um, the if you're talking about like changes using the cards to drive tracks, you know, as a part of you know like uh, you know you play this card and. You know the war in Europe changes as opposed to you know some other direct action on the board. So you sort of use the cards to bring in sort of the the broader picture of you know every game has a sort of an edge of the world function, right? You know you go to here and you, you know you, you can't go any further in the in the context. But I think that that's been something that I've seen in CDG. But I think Bayonets and Tomahawks has sort of done some cool things and um, uh, and in fact, uh, what is it called? 13 Days, which is a really nice uh, of the small CDGs. They use it uh, on the, it's how you affect those three um, crisis tracks, right? You can blow the world up kind of thing uh, during that crisis. So I think that's been sort of the thing that I've noticed is using the cards to drive tracks, which bring in other elements onto themselves. There you go. Oh, I guess it must be the French version. Yeah, that's uh, the French version. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could read it, but I said that that's not that doesn't say that's not days. That's Jules. Uh, but anyway, so I think that's what I've seen. Volca, uh, what do you got? <laughs> uh, well, I'll I, I'll uh, bounce off of an, an, a comment from Ricardo Massini and agree with him. Um, the the one that comes to my mind in terms of recent CDG innovation that 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 is. For me, very exciting and promising is um, Verdun 1916 Steel Inferno by Walter Vadosky. And it covers um, uh, the Battle of, of Verdun, which it's a single battle, but it's a giant battle. So it's really operational level trench warfare. And I've always been fascinated with how do we simulate the dynamics of trench warfare because they're so weird. In, on the West, you know, World War One Western Front is kind of weird in in uh, in the history of, of warfare. And what 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 Walter does in that game is leverages these various um, tools within the classic CDG of how do we link the action menu to events? How do cards do that? And so John Paniski and Hearts and Minds did it a little differently, where you could spend some of your ops to get the event also, for example. And there's a similar um, relationship in the cards in Verdun. It's, it's hard to explain because it's really, you know, it's a complex system. But in short, the way that he put, he engineered into the cards, the way the cards are, are built, engineers into the card play, World War I trench warfare style offensives and the difficulties of following up uh, and the, 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 the scripted and long buildup nature of, of, of barrages and offensives and, and the fact that you then had to kind of 
stop and pause and the enemy had a chance to come back. Well, all of that is just, you know, built in very, it's just, it's just a, a joy to play because you don't have to know a lot of rules to, to actually see how these trench battles worked out in such a way that once you, you know, when, if you're expecting World War II, you know, World War I trench battles seem really weird. Like, why couldn't they do more? And it's, for example, the artillery cards, you can use them for, for ops or just for the, the barrage. And the barrage, you always need artillery. The barrage is the only way to attack, which means if you're going to attack, you're not going to be moving. Other cards, you know, might give you an event plus a few ops. Anyway, it's just very, it's just very cleverly engineered making use of these basic relationships among CDG cards going back to the 90s, but to bring out the unique dynamics of trench warfare just in a way I haven't seen. And by the way, I, you know, I was a playtester on that. Really? Well, you, you did a fantastic job. No, 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 no. Walter, Walter's a very old friend of mine. He's a, he's, oh, is that right? Oh. Walter and I have been together for a long time, so I know him very, very well. Him and Frederick, uh, Bay, you know, Frederick and I go way back also. But um, but uh, it, you're exactly right. And by the way, the, the point I wanted to make was, of all, all the CDGs, nothing comes close to the artwork on Verdun. I mean, it is the best freaking card artwork on any game. <laughs> that 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 style, uh, that famous artist he got to do the cards is just extraordinary. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's really a beautiful game with the illustration from Tardy. It's it's really awesome that they actually secured that. It's it's really cool. Um, and actually, there there was a comment in the in the chat from Joe Dewhurst, uh, and I'm actually happy that for once Joe is watching the show, so that's that's really <laughs> nice. Uh, and Joe Dewhurst was was asking about uh, Virsinda's Volk, uh, and I don't know if you know this game, and I think it's an interesting one, and it makes a good transition to to a discussion that I wanted to have with with you about uh, 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 what is the hand management part of the game and 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 the role of the deck in Virsinda's Volk. Each player have a small hand but they also uh, share a market. Uh, so you could say that uh, they have their own hand, but they also share a hand in the middle. And I was wondering, is this something that you thought is thought provoking that makes sense in most of the game or what do you see the, the limits in that? Uh, I think it's a really interesting twist on it because it really cements the idea that cards are opportunities that you can make decision on. And it's you have this dual layer of, I'm gonna play a card for ops or the event, but you also have that other layer of can I afford to wait to activate this event or can I let my opponent taking the event from me? And I was thinking, have you tried the game and what do you think about that mechanic and, and how it uses cards in a novel way? And maybe we can start with, with you, Jason. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it's an incredibly clever game and uh, I very much enjoy it. I think in some maybe... Uh, since I know Ananda has also played it, I think in some non-express ways, it probably influenced the way we thought about imperial struggle and the common market for um, operations there, because you end up with that same kind of tension that you see in Beers and Das Volk, where you need to grab this now or potentially forego the opportunity or do I want to wait to set it up properly with the cards that it's a similar tension. And I don't know if any of you Volko or, or Mark actually played this game. So, so I've not played the game. So I have yeah. no comment on the game. I'm sure it's great. I, I was going to say though, the way you were talking about a market and such, you know, uh, my, my old, so, 
most game designers are not rocket scientists, but one of them is. That's Phil Eklund. Um, and um, Phil has a style of game which, again, I have, since having not seen the other game, I can't even say they're even comparable. But Phil's use cards. It's a card game, and he it doesn't even have maps. He uses the cards to create if there's any kind of map, but it's kind of more of a virtual map. But, you know, like if you play Pax Pamir, which is, which is really cold whirly, but using uh, Phil's system or – you know, Renaissance, which is one of my favorites of that whole genre. Uh, of course, you got Pax Perforiano, I think is the title of the game. You know, he's got this, you know, market, but what he's using the cards there is that those are opportunities. Think of it like political opportunities to change your how you're going to even go after victory in the game. You know, so right now I could be on this. This is the faction I'm sort of supporting. But look, there's a lot of cool ways for me to screw that faction and get onto this other faction, you know, become some become another person in this game. And so I think that that's uh, a kind of a cool thing. But again, it's definitely not a CDG. It's a card game. But what you described sounded like that with the market. And, you know, the further back in the market it is, the more it costs and the more it's this way, it's you know cheaper. And, you know, so there's a lot of games that kind of use that kind of mechanic of a market. So this one is actually quite different from the coin system because the coin system, it's a bit the same thing with the expenses that further away the card is, the more expensive it's going to be to get it. Or the uh, pack system. Yeah in, yeah, in the pack system and also in the expense uh, uh, by Joff. But in Versintas Vogue, every card are at the same cost. It's just that you have to, to you have that trade-off of, can I afford to wait? And that's more the the currency that you have is more time that you're that you're playing with. But in other in every other aspect, in the way it uses card, it's, it is purely a CDG, I would say, and it it, it reminds a, a lot of uh, maybe more 1989 uh, uh, regarding the topics and everything. But but it has this aspect, and for me, it makes a transition to another question that I had for for you is there is something that is in in, in CDGs there you could say there is two school of thoughts or maybe not school of thoughts but two approaches when you're making such a game is that some games don't have a shared deck and you have a deck perfection and some do. Uh, and I, I, I was wondering what do you, what, when do you think this makes sense and why make that separation or not? And maybe we can start with you, uh, Volko. Oh, uh, yeah, why not? Um, I, if you have, I mean, how many events do you have that either side could use? You know, how much do you want to have a, a sort of a script for the development of, of each position? That might be a, a reason you would choose to do it separately or not. Um, in But in Labyrinth, I mean, I, I copied Twilight Struggle with the idea that you, you have cards you're going to draw that are your opponent's events, and you're going to trigger that event for your opponent if you use the, the actions. Um, and... It was because I had enjoyed the decision making from that mechanic so much from Twilight Struggle, um, and that, and because the the genealogy of that game happened to be, you know, what if we took Twilight Struggle and put it, you know, in the in the War on Terror? I could have, I suppose, just as easily gone with two separate desks. The sides are very asymmetrical. You could see how it makes sense. So I, I don't know if I have for you, and maybe you know maybe Jason or Mark or, or you, Fred, do. I don't know that I have a kind of a modeling rule as to when I would go with separate decks versus combined decks. Um, I like the chaos of the combined decks, I guess, as a player. I guess I see the world as more chaotic. And if you have your own deck, now you're running through it. You kind of know 
a little bit more what you're going to get because it's all there in your deck and you know what your opponent's going to get. That might reflect, that might be sensible. That might reflect the, the state of awareness on the part of the historical parties. Um, I guess I tend to see it more as who knows who's going to get what. So I like to put them together. I, it's a pretty simplistic answer, but I guess that's my answer. And maybe you, Jason, just maybe your 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 thoughts on your thoughts on it about this idea of having decks separated or or not, and what does it? Yeah, I, I do have kind of a rule of thumb about it, which is I, I'm I'm thinking about how much control do both players have over the same set of events that are going to be in the deck. So in a situation where, like in the Cold War, or obviously. Um, in Labyrinth, where both participants are in some ways reacting to and, and participating in all of the same set of global events, then I think that combined deck methodology makes more sense. In a case where, like Imperial Struggle, where you have, um, while you have a global scope, in point of fact, communications and the rest of it are not in a situation at that time in human history where England and France can both react to the same set of events at the same time and manipulate them in the same way, then I think separate decks make more sense because to a, to a greater degree, the players are pursuing their own plans and competing their plans rather than reacting to outside forces imposed on them. What would you say, uh, uh, Mark? So I, I, I sort of think of it like there are three separate axes here in my mind, okay? The first one is, and I even wrote a, a column called uh, To Script or Not to Script about CDGs. And it is my view that um, where I have been unsuccessful and others like and, and Jason and Nanda were much more successful is people like to know – Maybe the, maybe the elements of the story happen in different order, but they like to know that all the elements of the story are going to be there. You know, there's going to be a this kind of crisis is going to come up somewhere and, it, you know, you're going to have to deal with it. You know, so when you have to deal with it is the issue, not that you're going to end up dealing with it most of the time. I know you can bury cards in the space race and all that, but for the most part, there's a there's a story arc, which is the Cold War, and there's a certain uh, predictableness to it. I lean more than the other axis is how much do you want to not script it? And so when you don't want it scripted, putting a combined, so one way around it, you know, in Twilight Struggle, which is obviously the most successful CDG of all time, it's a combined deck, but all the events are, and again, I, I use this with the caveat, but the events are all mandatory, right? You know, it's like if I'm holding a hand of, I'm on the Americans, I'm holding five Russian events, I can get rid of one of them through the space race or a couple of things, like little tricks I can use, but ultimately those, those five events are going to happen all I get to choose is what order they're going to come out in. Okay, so that's that's one way of handling the combined deck. The other way to look at a combined deck is to say, okay, uh, I don't want every event that happened historically to actually happen. I want some deletions in the story. And so I get a hand of cards and I go, okay, um, uh, let's call it for the people. I've got three rebel events, but I can use them as I have to use them as ops. And I've got four union events, so I can use them as ops for the event. And so the Confederate events aren't going to happen. And the Confederate player doesn't know, oh, I really wish I could get that card. I don't know that the Union player has already played it until he discards it and uses it, that that card is not going to be one of the elements of my strategy. So you got to be a little bit more flexible. 
the other axis I look at is how much do you want the card decks to reflect different philosophy? I mean, I, political philosophy, military philosophy, for whatever. And so then I started thinking about two separate decks. And so when I did Empire of the Sun, how the Japanese were organized and how they fought and, and how they even, you know, were going to deal with the war is just very different than what the U.S. was going to do. And, and so to try to use a combined deck there in a military game with not much politics, I wanted the, the two decks to reflect the organizational military structure that, that drove those organizations. And so I used two separate decks. Now, what I do to get around the problem of, like, I know what's going to come up is I always make the, be- the deck, I always like, some guy wrote me and said, why does For the People have 130 cards? It's too many cards. And I, I kept thinking of that, that scene from Amadeus, you know, it has as many notes as I wanted it to have. You know, and, and so, you know, and I like a big deck because ultimately you're not going to see all the cards. And so that's sort of the, you know, the extra element of it all is you don't get to see it all. You can't predict it. And, and let's face it, Lincoln never sat down and said, OK, when am I going to get that, you know, emergency call for volunteers card? I really need it now. And he never thought that way. Right. So I also want to reflect the fact that, you know, like right now, um, Look what's going on in Cuba. Look what's going on in Haiti. Look what's going on with us pulling out of Afghanistan. And now you have to tell me that if I was playing a CDG of this right now, what's the next card? I have no idea what's going to happen next. And so the people in the time period didn't know what was going to happen next. So why should you? That's my answer on, you know, how much scripting is reasonable from a historical point of view. They just didn't have that control over the situation. Can can I just mention, because that makes me think of another innovation in CDGs that we haven't mentioned yet, but I think was, is for me important. Um, and that is to try to kind of um, walk the line between, we have a lot of combined events and chaos that anybody could end up deploying, but each of the sides, each of the player factions, whatever, have their own approach, culture, organization, or whatever that you want to reflect in the cards. And, um, and what I'm thinking of is home cards that, um, you know, that Mark McLaughlin has in the Napoleonic Wars and other games. And, and, and I think Ed Beach has used as well in his games. So you have a combined deck with all the, the, the chaos that you may, may want, but you also have some guaranteed things, special things that you can do. And those cards, you always get them, um, they refresh, and they work the same or pretty much the same as other CDG cards, but they're not a whole separate deck. They're just a, a small set that gives a specific personality to your role in the game. Yeah, I, I agree with that, by the way. And and I think that um, when I did Churchill, you know, Roosevelt's always there, you know, unless he, unless he dies. But, you know, Churchill's always there. And in Pericles, you know, you have your leader card. So I I, I, I forgot about that, but that is a great, that is was one of the great innovations was the use of home cards in the Napoleonic Wars, absolutely. Jason, you wanted to say something. Along those lines, I I, I would note that I, I that um, one of the one of the evolutions and one of the fixes to the problem Mark identified about sequencing in decks and important event sequences has is this idea of using home cards to resolve the sequencing problem, and I think that's that's in Shores of Tripoli, but a couple of other games have solved the. Uh, what, when am I allowed to make this invasion problem or whatever by that same approach? 
Right. You basically get to, in fact, I have played Shores of Tripoli. It's a lot of fun. You get the, like, when you pull that card, you can hold it, like you can hold it on the side for a while. It, it gives you some limitations, but basically you know that when you want to invade Derna or something like that, you've got the, you already know where the card is. See, one of the things that I, I've, um, going back to the deck management thing, um, you can use the disc, the discard pile is your friend, if you think about it that way. In other words, the ability to go fish um, at some cost is an important element in how you deal with the sequencing issue. So in other words, if you're playing Empire of the Sun and early in the game, uh, Operation Downfall occurs, you know, the invasion of Japan, it goes into the discard deck, you use it as a three card, but you also know it's in the discard deck and there are cards that allow you to, you know, dump a card and pull a card. So you always know where the invasion is when you need it. So you can use the discard pile in a similar way as long as you have a mechanic that allows you to fish into the discard pile at some cost. I, you know, I, I guess I, it, this also makes me think of sometimes if you do have separate decks for different players, you, you are encouraging effects of, of when you said deck management of trimming your own deck in a certain way. Um, and it's kind of maybe the opposite issue of a deck building game where I've got remove events you know, if I play this card as an event, it's gone. That card's out. And if I use it for ops or discard it, it's still in. And so now I'm shaping my own deck. And that, I mean, that seems like it would be a powerful design tool if it were purposeful. Um, I, I'm not sure it's always been used in a purposeful way with separate decks, deck, deck games. Um, and I'm not referring here to Empire of the Sun, um, but, but other examples I have in my head, as opposed to something that just to me seems like an art artifact you know i think that's because that's so powerful to shape your own deck the designer really needs to think about what is the history i'm representing with that mechanic yeah. which and is not an issue so much if it's a combined deck where you're both drawing or you've got 130 cards and you're only going to play 60 of them and it's actually a big side effect of pass of glory where you're going to try to trim it as much as you can to have only the big ups value cards uh, later down the line so i think that makes a, a lot of sense actually there was this game i don't know if you guys played it time of crisis uh, that it, where actually the deck building part of it makes a lot of sense because it's just you're building influence you're uh, you're making your own organization more and more efficient and in that sense like i feel like it represents something historically uh, but I, would you say that it's the same in Pass of Glory or it's more of a side effect of the system? And I was seeing you, Jason, nodding a, a lot. Yeah, no, that it, I, I don't know. I have no idea whether that was a design choice or not, but it is definitely an important part of good play, right? If you're if you're trying to be competitive in Pass of Glory, that, that deck trimming um, so that you make sure you've only got the high ops cards towards the end. This is the end of the first part of a two-part discussion about CDGs. I hope that you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please share it with fellow board game and history nerds, and check out my Homo Ludens channel on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Fred Serval, but expect some silliness. I'll conclude this show with the theme song from Le Professionnel, by Inyo Morricone, as a tribute to Jean-Paul Belmondo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>